Welcome to The S Factor. Now here's your host, Chuck Shazer. Oh, how I love that song, and oh, how I love how perfect it is for the S-Factor. I want to thank you guys for joining me today. My name is Chuck Shazer, creator of ScienceAnimated.net. I'm just a guy that loves science, and I hope that you enjoy today's show. The S-Factor is on Cruising 92.1 WVLT the first Saturday of every month, so I take what I think is the most important science news, the coolest and I get it together for you, and I put it together in a new segment, and I also choose a main topic on these shows. And today's main topic is going to be murder hornets. Now, they were in the news like crazy. You probably remember this. I actually watched video on social media and other news outlets online where I saw a murder hornet completely it, it stung this poor little innocent mouse and I, I believe that it stung it so much that it killed it now so I want to talk about the murder hornets and maybe a little bit about honeybees but specifically about murder hornets that's going to be the main topic of, of the S factor today of course if you ever miss the S factor that's right here on Cruise 92.1 WVLT the first Saturday of every month Check out my website, scienceanimated.net. You can check out past S-Factor podcasts right there. Past S-Factor shows. I turn them into podcasts. But all the past shows, if you missed any of them, you can check them out on the website. I have transhumanism on there, the science of fitness, the science of love. We have Mars Madness. And then I did a special on viruses when we're right in the, in the thick of things with COVID-19, I decided, let me investigate viruses. What are they? How do these pandemics work? You know, what's the worst one we've been through as a country? And as it turned out, obviously, that was the Spanish flu of 1918. So if you want to listen to any of those past shows, they're all great shows, check out scienceanimated.net. And if you have a little person in your life, you have a little son or daughter, they love PBS, and if you like w- watching educational content with them, Science Animated the Human Body is available to purchase on scienceanimated.net. And by the way, I just want to thank everybody that has been purchasing the digital stream copy of Science Animated the Human Body. It's $9.99. You purchase it through the website. You can watch it on any device. It's coming, from, coming at you from YouTube, so you can watch it on anything. Very versatile in that way. You can also order the DVD. And there's more stuff coming to the store, by the way. And that's very exciting. I'm working on a coloring book right now. A digital coloring book. A few other things. Of course, The Orbit Show is available to watch. That's free content on scienceanimated.net. And if you wouldn't mind you know, visiting my sponsors, doing business with my sponsors, they're all local people in South Jersey. And that helps me too. So it just helps carry on the 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 importance of science and science education. Uh, I can't stress how important that is. I believe to humankind, to the human race, very very important that we encourage our young people to learn about science. And there are so many cool things about science, and people don't even equate some of these things in the news to science and scientific research. So my goal in this show was always 
you know, to bring everybody together, rally everybody around the world of science, because there's some really cool stuff happening out there. It's happening every day. And I know we all get busy with our lives. We're all busy. I mean, I have a, I have a family and I know it's, it's very difficult, um, you know, sometimes to be aware of everything that's happening in the world. So hopefully you enjoy the show and you continue to listen and check out the website. And I will not disappoint that, I promise you. Now, the show today is pre-recorded, so please no phone calls. I'm not sure how many of these pre-recorded shows I'm going to be doing. I've been doing them since, I think, my last show in the studio at 92.1 was probably in March when I did Mars Madness, I'm going to say. Because then after that, I believe it was viruses and... You know, I had last month's show where I talked about, uh, I actually had an interview with Tony Basile of Tony Fit. I'm not sure when I'm going to come back into the studio, <laughs> maybe next month. We'll see. But if you ever have a question, comment. If you want to reach me, if you want me to read your question on air, feel free to email me at info at scienceanimated.net. You can catch me on all the social media channels, which you can get to through scienceanimated.net. If you're on Facebook all the time, check me out. It's facebook.com slash science animated. If you're a Twitter person, twitter.com slash science animated. And you can reach me in all those different ways, and I will get back to you. And if you want something right on the air, if you want me to tackle a specific topic or talk about something, or in a news segment, I'm this is a very interactive show. When I'm in the studio, we, we, we get calls. I love that. So since I am you know being very careful right now, since I have a little one, and I'm doing it. This is another pre-recorded show here. If you can't, you can't reach me obviously on the phone now. So you can reach out to me through email and through the social media outlets. Be more than happy to talk to you and perhaps read your question on air. Of course, with all this COVID-19 keeping everyone home, hopefully everybody out there is not only being safe, but they're also being healthy. And of course, during these times, everyone's home. And I guess there, you know, there could be a likelihood for some people to maybe drink too much or eat too much. So on the phone, we have Tawny Basil with Tawny Fit. And Tawny, I think there may be some people in trouble out there. So what kind of advice can you give the average person that may be sitting at home, uh, consuming a lot of like Netflix and, and just sitting around a lot? What can they do? You're right, Chuck. Um, you know, it's been a rough few weeks. Uh, and if you're one of the many Americans out there right now, chances are you've been spending a lot more time on the couch binge-watching Netflix and snacking out of boredom than you originally planned. You're not alone. I'm guilty of it as well. But right now, I'm offering personal training through video chat on your schedule. Now, I know a lot of people are weary of, with video chat, so if you're one of them, that's okay. I can still make you a workout plan to follow on your own. Both of these come with text or email support and tips on how to eat healthier. And as always, it's always personally tailored towards you and your goals. If you're interested, shoot me an email at tawnyfit at gmail.com or text READY to 609-674-8077. That's right, and that's going to be a great help for many people out there that are, are sitting at home. And if you have that sedentary lifestyle... Of course, you got to get up and move. Of course, that, what I do for a living, I'm, I'm sitting around a lot, so I always make sure that I work out. It's something that you have to, everyone can say they don't have time to do it, Tawny, but you have to make time for these things. It's important for your health. 
Absolutely. If you have time to binge watch your favorite TV show on Netflix, you definitely have 20 to 30 minutes to work out. Yeah, just give your information one more time, Tawny, in case they want to reach out to you. Of course, Tawny has programs that are tailor-made to each person's goals, and that can vary quite a bit, can it, Tawny? Absolutely. Um, you have people who are, are well-seasoned, and they're just out of the gym, and then you also have people who are completely sedentary, and they have never stepped foot in the gym in their entire life. And I've worked with people from A through Z. So you can shoot me an email at tonyfit at gmail.com or text READY to 609-674-8077. All right, Tony, thank you very much for joining us today. And if you want to get in the best shape of your life, reach out to Tony Basil at TonyFit. Thanks, Tony. Thank you so much, and well wishes to your families during this pandemic. And now, without further ado, let's go into some of the coolest science news from the last month. Scientists say they found the cleanest air on Earth. Scientists believe they have identified the world's cleanest air, free from particles caused by human activity, located over the Southern Ocean, which surrounds Antarctica. In a first-of-its-kind study of the bioaerosol composition of the Southern Ocean, researchers from Colorado State University identified an atmospheric identified an atmospheric region which remains unchanged by human activity. Weather and climate are closely linked, connecting each part of the world with other regions. As the climate changes rapidly because of human activity, scientists and researchers struggle to find a corner of the Earth effect unaffected by people. However, Professor Sonia Kridi-Rice and her team suspected that the air over the southern ocean would be least affected by humans and dust from the world's continents. Researchers found that the boundary layer air, which feeds the lower clouds over the southern ocean, was free from aerosol particles produced by human activity, including burning fossil fuels, plant, planting certain crops, fertilizer production, and wastewater disposal were transported from, an, from other countries around the world. Air pollution is called by aerosols, which are solid and liquid particles and gases that are suspended in the air. Researchers decided to study what was in the air and where it came from, using bacteria in the air as a diagnostic tool to infer the properties of the lower atmosphere. Research scientist and co-author of the study, Thomas Hill, explained that the aerosols controlling the properties of the Southern Ocean clouds are strongly linked to ocean biological processes, and that Antarctica appears to be isolated from southward dispersal of microorganisms and nutrient disposition of from southern continents, he said in a statement. Overall, it suggests that the Southern Ocean is one of the very few places on Earth that has been minimally affected by anthropogenic activities. Scientists sampled the air in the marine boundary level the part of the atmosphere that has direct contact with the ocean, while aboard a research boat traveling south to the Antarctic Ice Edge from Tasmania, Australia. Scientists then examined the composition of airborne microbes, which were found in the atmosphere and often dispersed thousands of kilometers by the wind. Using DNA sequencing, source tracking, and wind-back trajectories, Scientist and first author Juan Utek found that the microbes' origins were from the ocean. From the bacterial composition of the microbes, researchers concluded that aerosols from distant landmasses and human activities 
such as pollution or soil emissions caused by land use change were not traveling south and into the air. Scientists say that the results show a stark difference to all other studies from oceans both in the northern hemisphere and subtropics, which found that most microbes came from upwind continents. As studies have shown, air pollution can cross geographical boundaries and affect people hundreds of miles away from where it originated. Now that was a really cool story, wasn't it? There's actually a spot on Earth that is unaffected by aerosol. And you can think about how truly interconnected we are. People hundreds of miles away can be affected by pollution from its uh, source of origin. We really are an interconnected world. You know, we all have, I would say, more in this age in 2020, more now than ever in 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 the history of humankind. We all have specialized jobs, and we're all reliant on each other. I'm an artist, so I don't make my own pencils. Somebody makes those for me. Software I use to do things for, for Science Animated and do things for my day job. That I don't I didn't write that software. So you can really appreciate your fellow human by just realizing how interdependent we are on the different things that we specialize in. We're all reliant on each other for to do our jobs, to earn a living, and also just to be comfortable. I mean, let's face it. How many of you guys made your HVAC system? We have summers coming around the corner here. We're starting to get hotter weather. Somebody in a factory made that. There was there were sci- there was engineers behind that that built that machine. Then you had research that went into the refrigerant. So the fan can blow and you can get that cool air. Right? So every aspect of our life it's it's i know it's 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 not something that people think about that often i think about it and i think it's a good thing to think about that every so often because you really gain a new appreciation for things that we let's face it we all take for granted until we don't have them right so that's a pretty cool story there oh being a star trek fan this next story goes right to my heart. SpaceX launch reactions. Humanity needs hope, George Takai says. The historic crewed launch of NASA astronauts from U.S. soil lifts spirits and a gravity-defying stuffed dino steals a heart or two. Oh, what a great accomplishment this was. And by the way, the SpaceX spacesuits that the NASA astronauts had on, are they sleek looking or what? The old, I was just telling someone the other day, the old astronaut spacesuits look, look like the Michelin Man or something. You know, they're real big, bulky. These things are pretty sleek. Not quite Starfleet yet, but it's a step in the right direction. NASA and SpaceX made history Saturday, launching astronauts into space from U.S. soil for the first time since the Space Shuttle era wrapped up in 2011. It's also the first time a privately built spacecraft SpaceX's Crew Dragon capsule atop the company's Falcon 9 rocket has played cosmic taxi for astronauts. After a 19-hour ride, NASA knots Bob Beckin and Doug Hurley reached the International Space Station 10 minutes ahead of schedule 
Sunday morning. The world paid close attention to the high-profile happening as evidenced by reactions on Twitter Saturday. NASA, of course, had something to say, posting a clip of the launch along with an iconic and heart-stirring phrase, We have liftoff. And this is what NASA said on Twitter, We have liftoff. History is made as NASA astronauts launch from NASA Kennedy for the first time in nine years on SpaceX Crew Dragon. Other folks supplemented that visual with some nice images of their own. So we had shots from Dublin on Twitter. Huge reaction. I know Elon Musk was very excited about this. As we call him the real-life Tony Stark. <laughs> For you Iron Man fans out there, he's the closest thing we have here, and he's doing some important stuff. Very, very cool stuff from Mr. Musk here. Now, some of these, now, George Takai, who was on Star Trek, of course, had this to say on Twitter about the launch. Some fictional spacemen weighed in on this as well, namely Star Trek's Captain Kirk and Mr. Sulu, also known as William Shatner and George Takai. Humanity needs hope. And you have provided a much-needed burst of it, Takai wrote. And Cap Captain Kirk himself, William Shatner, wrote, Congratulations to NASA and SpaceX, and he gave it the big thumbs up. So this is a great, this is wonderful, isn't it? Step in the right direction. Of course, we have commercial business and NASA working side by side here. And, oh, and by the way, they're, they're launching, Elon Musk wants to create a worldwide, a global internet and they're doing that with the Starlink project. I saw an image online, I think yesterday, the day before, and I actually, you could see it. Somebody took an image of these things, a terrestrial image. You could see them in the sky, the Starlink satellites. And some astronomers are kind of worried about this, that they kind of think that perhaps the uh, SpaceX's Starlink satellites, and again, this is for... A global internet, global internet access. So it'll be a, it'll be basically a global internet provider. They're worried that this is going to mess up our, our view of the nighttime sky. Like we won't, you know, be able to see. You know, we'll have trouble seeing past these things. So I think they put something on the satellites that kind of dims them. So that's a great thing. But they're putting up 400, 500 satellites. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff in orbit. You don't think about that. But there is a lot up there. Hopefully, it doesn't get too cluttered. And I think the intentions are are incredible. You know, they have internet for all people all over the Earth. And the Starlink, that's a, that's a step in that direction. And NASA teaming up with SpaceX, I mean, that seems like it... it it may be the future of space travel in America, you know, from here from here into the foreseeable future, of course. We are going to take a quick commercial break, and we're going to get back to the science news. Uh, by the way, if you are interested in advertising on this show, on the S-Factor, you can contact me at info at scienceanimated.net. Again, that's info at scienceanimated.net. We have great responses from the show. I have some great listeners. I'm, I'm really proud to say that. And if you are interested in advertising on the S-Factor, 
reach out to me and we will put something together for you. So we'll be back right after this quick commercial break. You're listening to The S Factor, and I'm your host, Chuck Shazer. Spring is here. Warmer weather, flowers are blooming, and you can start fresh in a brand new home. There are plenty of beautiful homes in the area, and interest rates are at near record lows. So now is a great time to buy. Now maybe you'd like to finally purchase that investment property you've always wanted. Or maybe you'd like to sell a home or property. Realtor Tyra Shazer can assist you in buying or selling any home or property. Contact Tyra Shazer at Remax Platinum Properties at 609-402-1992. Again, that's 609-402-1992. Or email her at tyrasdreamhomes at gmail.com. Hi, I'm Tara Shazer, and I'm ready to help you find your dream home. Oh, no, no one wants to hear that sound. If you are involved in a motor vehicle accident, I have the body shop for you. Trust the professionals at Cherry Hill Collision. Cherry Hill Collision is a proud member of the iCar Gold program. To perform collision repair in the state of New Jersey, a body shop is required to have a license to do business, but there's no requirement to have training on how to properly repair a vehicle. iCar is the predominant source for training in the collision industry. Many shops will get iCar trained, but only the best shops will go the extra mile and get iCar Gold trained, and the professional staff at Cherry Hill Collision is trained in the iCar Gold program. So if you're in an accident, you can rest easy. Cherry Hill Collision will return your car as safe as the day it was built. Your car was designed to keep you safe in a collision, and thankfully, it did its job. Cherry Hill Collision will put it back together to keep you safe once more. They realize that cars can be repaired, but people can't. That's why they provide the safest, correct repairs, and they are the highest rated auto repair shop in Camden County, New Jersey. There is a right way to make repairs that many car owners aren't aware of. They are here to help. Cherry Hill Collision is also a certified repair facility for several vehicle manufacturers. They also service all oversized vehicles, including transits and sprinters. So if you have been in an accident, call 856-663-0500. Again, that number is 856-663-0500. Cherry Hill Collision is located at 326 Haddonfield Road in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Cherry Hill Collision, making your life easier. Check out Cherry Hill Collision online at cherryhillcollision.com. Welcome back to the S Factor. Thank you for joining me today. This is a very cool story. Who out there is interested in dinosaurs? Well, an unusual toothless dinosaur has been identified by paleontologists in Australia. The dinosaur, an Elaphriosaurus, roamed Australia 110 million years ago, according to a statement released by the Swinburne University of Technology. A bone from the dinosaur was discovered by volunteer Jessica Parker during a dig in Victoria in early 2015. Initially thought to be from a Pritiosaur, the neck bone was studied by experts at Swinburne University who realized that it was from a theropod or meat eating dinosaur. The only catch, this meat-eating dinosaur probably didn't eat meat, said Swinburne paleontologist Dr. Stephen Propat in the statement. 
The bone matches a group of theropods called Elephrosaurus or light-footed lizards. Elephrosaurus had long necks, stumpy arms with small hands, and relatively lightly built bodies. As dinosaurs go, they were rather bizarre. The few known skulls of Elephrosaurus show that the youngsters had teeth, but the adults lost their teeth and replaced them with a horny beak. We don't know if this was true for the Victorian Elephrosaurus yet, but we might find out if we ever discover a skull. Australia is no stranger to dinosaur discoveries. In 2019, for example, researchers discovered the fossilized remains of a herd of dinosaurs in an apple mine in the Australian outback. So what do you think about that? Speaking of dinosaurs, Tyrannosaurus rex is probably one of the most, if not the, most recognizable dinosaurs ever and most popular, I would say. He has a hard time scratching his back because of his short arms. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Now, I will say this. A Tyrannosaurus rex had 50 to 60 solid cone-shaped teeth as big as bananas. Can you imagine such a thing? 50 to 60 solid cone-shaped teeth as big as bananas. Whoa. I know this. My dentist would absolutely love that dinosaur. He would probably be able to retire on the dental work from that dinosaur. <laughs> now the following science news story kind of makes me a little sad. Remember last month or in the S Factor radio show during the science news segment, we talked about the coral reef and how we were actually able to get the coral reef to reproduce, create new coral reef. That's tremendous news for the future of the coral reef and the very the most basic, fundamental start of the food chain in the oceans. So here's a story that isn't so upbeat. The deep ocean is warming slowly, but dramatic changes are ahead. The world's deep oceans are warming at a slower rate than the surface, but it's still not good news for deep-sea creatures, according to an international study. The research led by University of Queensland PhD student Isaac Bromorales looked at how ocean life was responding to climate change. Now he says this, We used a metric known as climate velocity, which defines the likely speed and direction a species shifts as the ocean warms, he said. We calculated the climate velocity throughout the ocean for the past 50 years, and then for the rest of the century using data from 11 climate models. This allowed us to compare climate velocity in four ocean depths, assessing in which zones biodiversity could shift their distribution the most in response to the climate change. The researchers found climate velocity is currently twice as fast at the surface because of greater surface warming. As a result, deeper living species are less likely to be at risk from climate change than those at the surface. However, by the end of the century, assuming we have a high emissions future, there is not only much greater surface warming, but also this warmth will penetrate deeper. So basically what they're saying here is it's on the surface mostly now. It hasn't gone deep in the ocean. And listen, there are some parts of the ocean that are five, seven miles deep. So he continues. In waters between 
a depth of 200 and 1,000 meters, our research showed climate velocities accelerated to 11 times the present rate. In an interesting twist, not only is climate velocity moving at different speeds at different depths in the ocean, but also in different directions, which poses huge challenges to the way we design protected areas. Significantly reducing carbon emissions is vital to control warming and to help take control of climate velocities in the surface layers of the ocean by 2100. But because of the immense size and depth of the ocean, warming already absorbed at the ocean surface will mix into deeper waters. This means that marine life in the deep ocean will face escalating threats from ocean warming until the end of the century, no matter what we do now. And how sad is that? This leaves only one option. Act urgently to alleviate other human-generated threats to deep sea life, including seabed mining and deep sea bottom fishing. The best way to do this is to declare large, new protected areas in the deep ocean where damage to ocean life is prohibited, or at least strictly managed. So that is not a very... That's not a feel-good story. It's, and you want to talk about, I talked about early not wanting to ever get political on the show. And that is, a, that is a very, very hot topic in the political realm. I've had callers call into my show, and I appreciate every caller that calls in. Even if you want to go down a political path, I, I, that's not what the show is about. It's just about what's in the science news and what the data says about any number of topics. That we, that we discuss here, whether it's a news-related topic or a main topic for the show. But I've, I've had callers call in and say, listen, the, you know, the Earth is warming on its own. This is cyclic. And this doesn't really have anything to do with us. However, the data says otherwise. And again, it's all about the data. It's, it's hard to have an opinion on data. Data's data. It's kind of like math. You know, we're not we're not arguing over the fact that two plus two equals four. It just is. You know, math is kind of the universal language of the universe, right? As they say. Now this next story is really cool. It's more of a, a feel-good story, which I like. And it deals with two living organisms in a symbiotic relationship, which is a beautiful thing because when it comes to nature, you know, a bee needs nectar, brings the nectar back to the hive. They eat the nectar. They, this is just an intuitive thing that's in them. They know how to do these things, like a bird building a nest. No one really taught the bird. There wasn't another bird that taught the bird. There wasn't nest building 101. Animals just have this instinctual way about doing things like that. This story is in that neighborhood. Such a cute story. Listen to this. Pollen-starved bumblebees bite half moons into plants to make them bloom. Scientists don't know yet when or how the behavior evolved. When their pollen supply runs short, bumblebees bore tiny half-moon shape holes in the leaves of flowering plants, causing blooms to appear weeks ahead of schedule. Bee-bitten plants bear flowers about two weeks 
to a month sooner than untouched plants, according to a new study published in the journal Science. Researchers attempted to recreate these bee bite patterns using metal, forceps, and a razor. But even then, the damage inflicted by bees boosted flower production more effectively than the scientists could. Bee-bitten plants bloomed 8 to 25 times before the artificially damaged one did, right? Depending on the plant species. How incredible is that? So we, we tried to do the same thing with tools, and it didn't have the same effects. I find that absolutely remarkable. Some plant species flower early in response to drought or in response to infections caused by certain pathogens, but few studies have explored how animal behaviors might prompt plants to bloom early. In early laboratory experiments, buff-tailed bumblebees appeared to ramp up this biting behavior when deprived of pollen, a key food source for both bee larvae and the worker bees themselves, the author noted. To test the hypothesis, the team deprived one group of worker bees of pollen for three days, while a different group was provided abundant pollen resources. When released into enclosures full of flowerless tomato and black mustard plants, the deprived bees began nibbling at the leaves with gusto. To confirm that the hungry bees weren't simply eating the leaves or carrying back, you know, bits back to the hive, the authors placed paper cones beneath the plants to catch falling debris. Leaf bits accumulated in the cones, and no leaf residue appeared back at the hive, they noted. The bee-inflicted damage resembles tiny half-moons carved by the insect's mandibles, or pinprick holes poked out with their tubular mouthparts. It's quite quick, with each cut only taking a second or so to complete. The team observed this biting behavior in both their laboratory bees and wild colonies that visited plants housed on rooftops at the ETH Zurich campus. In the wild bees, the team noted that biting behavior dropped off once the outdoor plants began to flower, bolstering the idea that the bees damaged leaves when their available pollen supply runs low. While several species of wild bumblebees ravaged the flowerless foliage, honeybees and common furry bees that visited the roof would not. But why would only bumblebees beat up plants to boost their flower supply? That the scientists don't know yet. Bumblebees do exhibit so-called nectar-robbing behaviors, where they slice in the plant parts that house nectar beyond the confines of a flower, and the leaf-biting behaviors may be related to that but they're not sure yet. Looking forward to team plans to study precisely how bee-inflicted damage drives plants to bloom early, and whether the same biochemical change occur in plants subjected to drought, pathogens, or other environmental stressors. It may be that fatty acids in bumblebees' saliva trigger a reaction in flowering plants, as is true of some caterpillar species. The bees may release some unknown chemical cue, or else damage the leaves in a highly specific way that scientists cannot yet replicate. If cues from bees can accelerate flowering, scientists might realize a horticulturist dream by deciphering the molecular pathways through which flowering can be accelerated by a full mouth. 
An encouraging interpretation of the new findings is that behavioral adaptations of flowering flower visitors can provide pollination systems with more plasticity and resilience to cope with climate change. In other words, as climate change alters when various plants bloom, understanding how bumblebees influence flowering could help farmers manage their crops. Now, what a great story that was by Live Science. How incredible is that? How incredible is nature? How do the bees know how to do that? Is the question, how did they evolve to know how to do that? So when the nectar supply runs low, they invoke that cutting technique so the flower can grow. Nature at its best. We're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're just talking about bees. Now we're going to move over and talk about murder hornets. What are they? Where did they come from? What does it mean? What do we have to worry about, if anything? You're listening to The S Factor. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer. We'll be right back to talk about those murder hornets. Stay tuned. Car buying can be a brutal experience. Pushy salespeople and deals that are too good to be true. Choosing the right dealership is crucial in today's marketplace. So, where can you go? Since 1976, there has been a dealership in Vineland that is family-owned and operated and has a diverse selection of cars, trucks, utility vehicles, and more. J&C Auto Sales at 1912 West Landis Avenue in Vineland can guide you through the car buying experience with no hassle and a laid-back atmosphere. The Shazer brothers carefully select each vehicle they sell and offer Carfax reports on all their inventory. Shop in a stress-free environment and get the vehicle you want at a price that won't rock your bank account. Stop by and mention the S-Factor for a special offer. J&C Auto Sales is located at 1912 West Landis Avenue in Vineland. You can give them a call today at 856-696-4072. That's 856-696-4072. Or check them out online at jcauto.net serving South Jersey for 44 years. Welcome back to the S Factor. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer of scienceanimated.net. Don't forget, you can catch me here the first Saturday of every month on Cruising 92.1 WVLT at 1 o'clock. The first Saturday of every month at 1 o'clock. Right here on Cruising 92.1 WVLT. Now we're going to talk about the menacing... Murder Hornets. So, what do they want? What are they all about? Popular Mechanics had a pretty cool article on Murder Hornets. And I want to share some info from that with you right now. Have you ever seen a Murder Hornet? If so, contact me at info at scienceanimated.net. I want to hear from you. Now, the nickname alone is pretty menacing. Murder Hornet. Excuse me. Murder Hornet. Based on that moniker, you might assume these critters are out for blood, but that's not the case. Even though murder hornets, known as Asian giant hornets, are typically more aggressive and larger than your average hornet. By the way, they can grow between 1.5 and 2 inches long. So 1.5 to 2 inches long. They don't really deserve their bad rep. Do you believe that? You might be concerned about reports that it's been spotted in the U.S. for the first time, especially since they're an invasive species 
and their presence could spell doom for native honeybees. So there's two experts here in the article that Popular Mechanics spoke to. So first of all, let's, let's ask this question. Where are murder hornets from? Well, murder hornets are native to Japan, but can also be found in other Eastern Asian countries, including Thailand, China, Nepal, and even Russia. They are not, however, native to British Columbia or Washington State, where there have been confirmed sightings in a colony in Canada and two hornets in Blaine, Washington. Scientists first spotted murder hornets in the Canadian city of Nenemo, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, in August 2019. Reported sightings helped beekeepers find a nest and destroy it using carbon dioxide, which displaces oxygen and essentially suffocates the hornet. Then in December 2019, it was spotted in Washington State for the very first time. So how did they get here? Well, one possibility includes the transportation of a queen via ship. Now again, remember, we're talking about this earlier. The globalization of our economy. The globalization, our world has kind of got, I mean, Earth is large, but our world has gotten smaller because human beings travel the globe like never before in human history. So along with that, we can, you know, get species that weren't here originally and can have a huge impact on our animals here, our insects here. Because our ecosystem in America isn't necessarily used to things like this. There's really no way for the hornet to have arrived here without the help of humans. This probably happened accidentally, which very often is a case for invasive species. But there's also a chance it was intentionally brought in. Oh, that sounds kind of interesting there, to say the least. That's not common for a species from another country to be introduced to a new ge geographic area. Now, should you be worried about murder hornets? On May 28, 2020, it was reported that a dead specimen was found in Langley, British Columbia, while yet another dead specimen was also discovered in Washington. Now, the two locations were a mere 15 minutes away, from where the first U.S. specimen was found. That's according to the New York Times. A photograph indicated that it was an Asian giant hornet, but researchers are planning to collect the specimen for further confirmation. So it seems to me like they weren't quite sure at that point in time if it was the same. Now, although murder hornets are making headlines, well, they were, for being found in new places, calls for concern should really be focused on native honeybees and what an influx of the invasive species could do to them. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I could do an entire show on how important honeybees are to our food supply. I would venture to the guess that most, most people don't realize just how important the honeybee is. They pollinate our vegetable and fruit plants. Without honeybees, I think the only food that would be left for us would be root vegetables. So our menu selection, our food selection, would suffer tremendously if we lost them. As a matter of fact, back in, I'm going to say it was 2008, I was very interested to learn about 
the colony collapse disorder. That's what it became known as back then. And what I'm, t- what I'm referring to is back in 2008, we were losing honeybees like crazy. It was probably 2008 or maybe 2010. I'd have to look that up to be sure. But it was, uh, you know, it was in the news. It wasn't probably headline news, but it was headline news to me because I know how important they are to our food supply. And I'm sure you're like me and you like to eat. So, and we love having a variety of food to choose from, don't we, as humans? It is tremendous. And also, not to mention the fact that the more variety of food we have available to, to us in the form of fruits and vegetables, ultimately the healthier we are. So, honeybees, you cannot stress it enough, I cannot overstate how important they are to our survival as a human species. The chance you'll encounter murder hornets stateside remains low, unless you're either allergic to hornet stings or, in rare cases, someone stumbles upon a nest and is stung numerous times. In those cases, the sheer amount of venom can cause severe medical issues. So here's what to look for when identifying a murder hornet. They're the world's largest hornets and have very little hair on their bodies, which are characterized by a dark thorax, a striped abdomen, an orange face with black eyes. Now these hornets also have a pincher-like mandible used for decapitating other insects, and that reminds me of that video I saw where it was just munching down on the bee's head. It was very gruesome, to be honest. I would not show a young child that. So, what about honeybees? Honeybees have more to worry about when it comes to the murder hornet than humans do. If the invasive hornets manage to establish a home in the U.S., the results could be disastrous for native honeybees, which would also be bad news for agriculture and food supply since we need honeybees to pollinate plants and spread seeds. Just what I mentioned earlier, they're mentioning it again here in this article, it is of incredible importance that we try to do whatever we can to protect our honeybees here. Now, the Asian giant hornets sometimes take over beehives, killing all the adults and using the bee larvae as food for their own larvae. Can you imagine? That is horrific, isn't it? He says that some Asian honeybees, a different species than U.S. honeybees, have adapted to defend their hives against murder hornets by surrounding and essentially cooking the attacker using their body heat. Basically, Asian honeybees surround a hornet and flap their wings as hard and as fast as possible to raise the temperature within the swarm. Some of the honeybees closest to the hornet will also die from the increased heat. But so far, this is the best defense a bee colony has against the murder hornet. I saw a video on Twitter, and you can check that out too, and it shows a murder hornet entering a hive of Japanese honeybees, and I, I witnessed this. They attack it. You know, they, don't, they don't mess with it right away. As a matter of fact, they didn't, they didn't even acknowledge the murder hornet was in the hive until the murder hornet, until the, excuse me, the murder hornet attacked one of the bees. When it did that, it was a signal to all the other honeybees in the hive, and they all attacked it. You ever watch football? 
and the receiver catches that ball, and you're like, that poor, poor man. They get hammered, and everybody is on top of them. I get claustrophobic just seeing a scene like that. So just Murder Hornet really pays for entering that hive. And they gang up on them. They're on them like a big cluster. And they overheat the Murder Hornet. And actually some of the bees, as this article states, overheat as well. Unfortunately for U.S. honeybees, they, do not, they have not developed this defense mechanism. Again, the, bee, the honeybees that do that are the Japanese honeybees. In the rare event that murder hornets make a home in the U.S., beekeepers would likely step in to help prevent, or excuse me, to protect the native bees. Some of the, some of the things beekeepers are currently doing to preserve populations include planting bee gardens with plants that have high levels of nectar and pollen, in addition to using chemicals, excuse me, to, in addition to using chemical-free fertilizers and herbicides. It remains unclear how murder hornets will affect the beekeeping industry, including honey production and pollination, should they manage to establish a home base in the U.S. Let's hope that does not happen so we don't have to deal with this situation. Our current concern for honeybees should focus on factors such as the loss of habitat and increased use of pesticides that bees have to contend with. And when colony collapse disorder happened in 2008, I'd say 2008 to 2010, in the very beginning, scientists weren't sure what was causing that. There were dead bees, like, all over the place, different areas of the country. And it was getting worse and worse. And quite frankly, I was concerned for us as a people. Because of our food supply, we, we rely on these bees so much. Their hairy legs, the little fur that they have in their body, that is what's transported when they go from flower to flower, from plant to plant. And that's how these things get pollinated and produce our food. So I believe back then they traced it down to pesticides. So we have to be careful with those things. It's important that we have to use them. We have to actually also be aware of what they can do and a negative consequence of that. Now, while murder hornets are more dangerous than other stinging insects, because of their large size, they can deliver more venom. It's highly unlikely that a person in the U.S. would encounter a hornet and get stung. Now, that's good news. There, there is an ample amount of venom in the hornet, in one of them, one of the murder hornets. Now, National Geographic reports that all of the venom within the body of a hornet is capable of killing about 10 mice. That's a lot of mice, and mice aren't... When you compare a mouse to a hornet, a murder hornet, they're, they're bigger. I mean, it's not a, you know, a huge difference, but the fact that it carries that much venom in it where it can kill 10 mice, that's, that's something else. But these stings shouldn't be significantly more dangerous to humans than the stings of other large wasps. Now, we have summer right around the corner. Have you ever been stung by a wasp? That stinks, doesn't it? It's such a sharp pain. <laughs> Last summer, I stepped on one. It was in my grass. I, had, I didn't have shoes on. 
And you got to be careful when, you, when you're doing that. You should have flip-flops or something on your feet to protect them. But man, I hurt like heck. Although it's not super common, every year people die from wasp and, wasp and bee stings. In Japan, it's between 30 and 50 people, with the main cause of death being an allergic reaction and not the venom from the sting. A lone wasp will typically go about its business and leave you alone, but if, if it's not provoked, if you happen to come across a nest, the danger is greater. If you stumble upon the murder hornet, the best thing to do is to put some distance between you and the hornet. If you're stung, treat the site the same way you would treat any other wasp or hornet. Clean the area where you were stung, apply ice, take pain medication as needed, and be on the lookout for allergic reactions or infections, especially if you've never been stung before. So, as we talk about these murder hornets and what they mean to us, what they mean, more importantly, according to these resources that I've checked out, I don't think we have a whole lot to worry about as far as our physical health, as far as them attacking us and, and killing us, you know, <laughs> talk about... The murder hornet name is, I mean, it sounds like it's being sensationalized and it was sensationalized, but at the same time, if you have a minute, and you, I, would, I would say go on YouTube, look them up. They do do some damage to mice, to honeybees, so you can see it for yourself. Pretty gruesome stuff. Viewer discretion is advised if that kind of stuff freaks you out. But, so they are a menace to their prey that's for sure and it could be a menace to our honeybees and let's just hope that doesn't happen if it does if they do decide hey you know the united states is a great place to set up shop let's let's colonize this country their honeybees are very delicious well we're gonna have to contend with this head on because I don't know about you, but I don't want to just be stuck with root vegetables to eat. I like our wide array of fruits and vegetables that we have available to us. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The S Factor. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer of ScienceAnimated.net. If you have any questions or comments, things you want me to touch upon on the show, feel free to email me at info at ScienceAnimated.net. And also, if you want to advertise on the show... We have some great rates on that. The creation of the ad is included in that, so you can reach me through info at scienceanimated.net there as well. By the way, feel free to check out scienceanimated.net, The Orbit Show, Science Animated the Human Body. Any way you can support the Yes Factor, I appreciate it, whether it's through my advertisers, uh, doing business with them, or purchasing Science Animated the Human Body. Like I said, the stream is available. It's only $9.99 especially with all the little ones being home, all the school-age kids being home. Maybe they've streamed everything Netflix has to offer. Be sure to check out scienceanimated.net. You can go directly there. $9.99, you can watch that stream as many times as you want, the stream of that movie. Again, I want to thank everybody for listening. It's such a pleasure for me to bring the coolest science news 
to you each and every month right here on Cruise 92.1 WVLT. You can catch me here the first Saturday of the month at 1 o'clock every month. I'll see you guys next time. Be safe. Take care of yourself and your loved ones and your friends. Until next time, this is Chuck Shazer. You have been listening to The S-Factor. You have been listening to The S-Factor. Brought to you by ScienceAnimated.net on Cruisin' 92.1 WVLT.